everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. That's right, this is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. Uh, for the purposes of this particular podcast, you may, if you must, call me Rockmeister McCool. The nickname I invented for myself, which is really embarrassing. It's a little embarrassing. I tried yeah. I tried other cooler nicknames. None of them stuck. For yourself or for me? You. Oh, okay. Yeah. We actually tried calling you the professor for a while, and for, it did not it did not land. For a second. Oh, there was one editor who referred to me as the professor. Yeah. Like one of our editors that we both worked for kinda liked that. But yeah. That it didn't never work, it never really clicked. Like, never quite clicked in. And, and now and, and then Lon Harris took that at the Schmodown, so it's ne- it'll the, never be yours. Well, you were already the beast. They paired us together on the Schmodown, and I became the beauty. Which I think you handled rather well. Your vanity was allowed yeah, to come out in full Sort of flower. like a sort of a vanity yeah. smurf, very, very yeah. egomaniacal, which is, you know, is an easy part to play. I'm looking forward to your triumphant return. But anyway, yeah. uh, this is, again, this is our letters podcast here at Critically Acclaimed. You write in to us. The email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And uh, we read as many as we can. We answer your questions. We listen to recommendations. We offer recommendations. Whatever it is, basically, we Mm -hmm. try to give you the space and we want to free up uh, uh, the platform uh, to as many of you as we can. And we can't get to every letter, but we sure as hell try. And that's why we're just going to jump right in. And this week, our first letter is very special. It's special because... We, I actually got it in the mail, mm. not the email, not the electronic mail, the actual the po- the physical post. mail. Mm. Uh, I received physical post from one of our listeners. Uh, that listener, of course, is uh, the incredible B. Peterson, uh, who mm. who is has their own podcasting network uh, themselves now, which is really uh, fantastic. Yeah, and they're going through like. All of the films of Frederick Wiseman as as one of their shows, uh, it's they're doing some really really interesting work. Yeah. Over there. Head on over, head mm-hmm. on over to uh, the Screens Margins is the name of that podcast network. Uh, also patreon.com slash Screens Margins. Uh, they're really doing great work over there, and it's really exciting. They've got cool people uh, working with them. Uh, but uh, they they sent me a and this is so sweet and it was completely not necessary, but I, I appreciated it. Uh, they sent me a uh, Criterion edition of Whit Stillman's Barcelona, which is a very good film. I, it was important to me growing up. It was one of like the films that like kind of introduced me mm-hmm. to '90s indie cinema, um, and um, it's it's very thoughtful. It's very very kind. And in the the package was an envelope, mm-hmm. and the envelope said in very dramatic letters. Look at this. Letter, letter 101, <laughs> which makes it, and I love this, yeah. like just getting a letter that just says letter 101 on it. Mm. Just, I feel like I'm at the start of a high concept indie Sundance thriller, but <laughs> anyway, you open it and you're drawn into a world of intrigue. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in any case, they wrote me a letter and I want to read it aloud. And, uh, it actually isn't just like birthday stuff. It's actually a letter for the show. So mm. y- y- you got it for this. Okay. Uh, do, and I'll read it because okay. it's my birthday. Uh, dear Bibbs and Whitney. Welcome to letter number 101. As this is being written in longhand, please forgive my typos as well as my unique handwriting. It actually looks suspiciously similar to my handwriting. Um, (laughs) You are the same person. Perhaps. Uh, The debate has long raged as to whether showing or telling is the more effective storytelling device to the point that government agencies occasionally got involved. This is true. 
Recently, this issue has been brought up in reference to Chloe Zhao's latest Nomadland. It has been argued that the lack of explicit context given when it comes to the economic challenges the nomads, or more specifically, the Amazon workers face, allows the film to present as if these disenfranchised peoples are, for the most part, well-off and well-treated by society and by corporations. I myself have gone back and forth on this. I was quite put off by the lack of interrogation into Amazon's treatment of its workers during my first viewing of the film, but during subsequent viewings, I was able to pick up on the political subtext on the edges of the main narrative, which is really more about grief than anything else, which is mm. fairly probably fair. Uh, the thing is, no one is obligated to see a film again in order to pick up on things they may have missed the first time. And regardless of whether or not you think Nomadland, a film which... Uh, a film which uh, uh, relies more on showing rather than telling succeeds. I lost my place, sorry. Yeah. Uh, I think it's safe to say that the film could have more explicitly told the audience where the disenfranchised being depicted originates from, where the disenfranchisement being depicted originates from. But then again, the film's potency may have been weakened had it been bathed in context to the point that the images suffocated under the text. Maybe what I'm actually getting at is the idea of context. If one watches a film about, say, two New York intellectuals discussing theater over dinner and doesn't know about all the works that they mention, or the lives the two have lived outside of the opening narration, then they may not perceive the generational trauma being touched upon, but who could blame them? All they're being given, superficially, is a lot of nonsense rooted in extreme privilege. Sorry, I'm not sure where that tangent came from. <laughs> <coughs> Anyway, all we can ultimately do is let the storytellers decide how to tell their story and respond to it as we will, but I'll still ask the questions. What is... Uh, uh, what is the... <laughs> lost your spot again there. I lost your spot again. Like, all right. Uh, so th that was a reference, just to, to bridge the gap while you look for your spot. Um, mm -hmm. uh, B is referring rather explicitly to My Dinner with Andre in that passage, yeah. which is uh, we have a, a podcast devoted to My Dinner with Andre, where we ask our friends to watch it, and uh, we'll occasionally release an episode of Not Us. Yeah. So stick around. Right. Uh, what, sorry, what are the ethics of showing versus telling, and how much obligation do films have to offer context in order to aid the audience in understanding what the film is getting at? Mm. B. Peterson. And this is a great question. Yeah. Uh, and, and it is something we've actually talked about on the show in regards yeah. to Nomadland. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why I wasn't deeply in love with it, even though it's incredibly well made, was that I thought it kind of underserved uh, some of the uh, larger context of the narrative. Okay. Yeah. Um, to briefly address the whole showing versus telling, the uh, that comes from an old uh, film school uh, bit of advice, mm -hmm. and specifically first-year film school, and that, that's the phrase that is bandied about a lot, and that is show, don't tell. That mm -hmm. is, try to communicate what you're trying to say visually rather than through dialogue. Uh, and this is not a hard and fast gauge uh, by which to measure a film's quality by any means. No. Uh, and in fact, uh, telling can be far more effective than showing in many cases. The reason why this phrase is bound, bandied about is because it's simple shorthand to encourage a young film student who might not know how to communicate something just yet to think of film as a little bit more visual. Well, it also stems from... Yeah, uh, yeah. It also stems from uh, an early effort in, uh, to leave political content out of films. Yeah. If you put a big political speech in a movie, 
that might get you in, in hot water with uh, the 1930s film establishment when these sorts of things were being put into place. Or in the uh, 1950s, for example, yeah. when like they didn't want shit to get too political because... Yeah. You know, it was all about rah rah America and anything else gets you blacklisted right. so, from Hollywood for being a communist. And so, so if, if they're encouraging young film students to think visually, they're going to have a little bit of a harder time conveying a political message that might be more easily comestible in dialogue. Yeah. Uh, all that aside, what is the ethics of show versus, versus telling and what responsibilities do filmmakers have to show rather than to tell? Um, all filmmakers are going to come at the material they're making with their own perspective, aren't they? Or a, yeah. a perspective that they've chosen to display. Yeah, to the best of their ability, uh, sure. And as such, the filmmaker is going to be making assumptions about who's going to be watching this. Probably somebody a lot like them, right? <laughs> that that Often, tends that tends to be the case. Yeah. Although sometimes it's uh, it, you know, it's been said an adult uh, filmmaker might be making a film uh, thinking about kids consuming it, for instance. Well, but uh, but I, there's a line I think Kevin Smith said this. Um, it's like make the film you want to see. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Which that's great filmmaking advice. It's perfect filmmaking advice because yeah. then you're super passionate about it. You're you're yeah. and honestly, there's a decent chance that there's a film you've wanted to see that you've never seen before. No one's ever made it. Mm. No one's ever done it the right way. Uh, or in your eyes, the right way, and so you're super passionate about it, and you want to get it out there, and it, it, you know, it's more likely to, you know, become something you put a lot of yourself into rather than trying to guess what other people mm -hmm. are into right now, and and just sort of fake your way into that. Um, and that's all. That's all true. Mm -hmm. That that's all a thing. But uh, again, it, it's every filmmaker gets to make the decision how much they want to show, how much they want to tell, mm -hmm. and. There's no hard, fast rule for this, I think. I think it, a lot of people think that show, don't tell is a rule because it was presented as a rule, mm -hmm. but it's not. It's just sort of a it's, general guideline a lot of people yeah, it's, it's just a, It's just advice. Yeah. It's, it's not a rule. <laughs> no, but like if you think about it, think of like all like the great speeches mm -hmm. you may have seen in movies. Think about like the parasol speech in uh, Citizen Kane. Mm. Uh, think about... Okay, um, the cuckoo clock speech in The Third Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or uh, any number of Tarantino monologues, for example. Mm. And, like, like imagine, like, the Like a Virgin speech in uh, uh, yeah, uh, Reservoir Dogs. Dogs. Yeah. Like, imagine if, it, while doing that, they had shown the music video for Like a Virgin. That would have been a very different scene. Mm. And what that scene is about is about being very conversational, about eavesdropping on people as they talk. It's about talking. Mm. Um, so you, what you get out of a scene is very different depending on whether you show or tell, and it's all about what you're going for at the time, and I think it's just a matter of what's your priority. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily mean you're necessarily going to make what I would consider to be the best choice. I've definitely seen scenes where people talk about stuff, and I'm like, I would much rather you show this right now, yeah. because nothing is happening except me being told what I missed off camera. But if you're... If the telling of the story, if the telling of the idea is important because I need to see the actor's performance as they talk about it, yeah. that becomes arguably more valuable than just showing the thing happening in the yeah, past. Exactly. Um, I, I feel that way, like a lot of blockbusters, uh, and I've noticed this about a lot of Disney animated features here recently, where they'll start the film with a full 20 minutes where we get to see like a flashback of the character as a young girl. This is a thing mm -hmm. in Frozen. This is a big part of Ryan, the last dragon as well, mm -hmm. where we get these entire scenes establishing where they came from, what had yeah, happened Mo in the past. Moana did this in the yeah, Moana as yeah. well. There's yeah, this yeah. big sequence where they're, they're a child mm -hmm. and 
all of that stuff is unnecessary to the actual telling of the story. And I think would be a lot more effective if they alluded to that sort of thing in dialogue. And that way your, your imagination can fill that in rather than just having 20 minutes of a literal version of just seeing it. And then they allude to it again later on anyway. Mm-hmm. Just cut that part out and I, you I, streamline the story a little bit better. I, I think if there's, if we're if we get into the nuts and bolts of every single one of those, there are things that I think maybe you could have left on the cutting room floor, mm-hmm. but I think you would it would be to your detriment if you lost other things. So that's maybe not a hard fast well, rule, but there, there's other ways to incorporate it into the story without just sort of showing it all. Yeah. Well, the other the other element of this, though, mm. and this is because uh, we're talking about simple visual storytelling, mm. uh, what we see versus what we don't see actually on camera, because you don't have an infinite amount of time, no matter how long your movie is. Uh, you do have to pick and choose what goes in front of the camera. Mm. Uh, but that's just in terms of showing you the action or showing you the backstory or uh, getting inside someone's head. There's also the, the, the simple topic of or not so simple topic, actually, but it's the, uh, the different topic. Of discussing a movie's themes and how directly yeah. you're going to engage with them. Is it going to be purely symbolic? Is it going to be uh, just merely implied? Or are you actively going to talk about what is actually on your mind, the greater issues at hand uh, regarding the subject of your story? And there are, again, there's a million different approaches to this. Mm. I think something like, for example, uh, like Nomad Land does a little of that, but a lot of it is just being in the experience of someone who has been economically uh, Down, disinfra- downtrodden. Yeah, yeah, downtrodden is a great word for it. Um, and reduced to a nomadic lifestyle as a result. Uh, and so it's it's more about just humanizing that experience. Uh, but I feel it raises so many valuable uh, uh, questions and so many valuable uh, issues that not engaging with that is doing the audience a little bit of a disservice. But then again, there's stuff like, for example, Promising Young Woman, which talks about, uh, you know, mm-hmm. sexual violence and guilt in a very frank way. Mm-hmm. And I think is all the stronger for it. Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. then there are films that are very, very subtle about it and they don't need to go into great detail. And that's OK, well, like, too. But... Like, the Claire, uh, like Claire Denis, for instance. Yeah. It's a filmmaker who uh, very deliberately eschews even basic narrative. Often, like yeah. trying, trying to keep a lot of the plot points off camera and you have to piece it all together yourself. Yeah. There's uh, a when. I'll let you go. Uh, when, when it comes to, and, and what B. Peterson is talking about is uh, a lot to do with uh, what some people refer to as pretense or mm. pretentious movie. Uh, that is, that is in the literal sense, needing to know something and needing to have context for a lot of the content of a film before you go in. Mm. Um, you and I have both argued that uh, like Avengers Infinity War might be one of the most pretentious movies out there because they're not going to catch up. No, they're, they're you're, assuming you're, you know at least a lot of this going yeah, in. Like a lot of yeah. who these characters are and what their relationships Where are. Where they left off know. in their last movie. And, and, like, it's... And, all, and also how much you care about them. Mm-hmm. Like they're not going to do anything to make you care about the characters now. Yeah, there's not they a lot of heavy, you yeah. know. And, yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, do filmmakers have a responsibility to catch you up? No. Not necessarily. They don't. They don't have to. It's, it's considered polite, it's, but yeah, yeah, it's not really. If, if they're going for something like hugely oblique, maybe a little bit of context is nice. Unless you're going to go like full bore Matthew Barney and just <laughs> it's like this is based on some kind of obscure masonry, you know, Masonic temple I, rite that def- you all know, right? I you know, defy you to know what all the Graymaster movies are about. Yeah, like I you, you, you. you have to do research afterwards, and some yeah. some people like you know dunderheads like me actually find that kind of exhilarating, but uh, I understand that's not everybody's cup of tea. Uh, So filmmakers only are going to include what they 
think you need to know. Mm. And they might be making assumptions about the audience, about what books you might have read or other films you might have seen. And I think that's legit. And there's going to be an audience who is on the same wavelength. True. And if you're not, maybe you'll sense that something important is being said and it will encourage you to find out more about the thing. Perhaps. Uh, Or if the filmmaker is being uh, intentionally oblique or a little bit... um, you're coming at it from uh, a, an outsider's perspective where they feel no obligation to explain anything mm. that can feel very alienating. And that's, those are the kinds of films that a lot of people label as being pretentious mm-hmm. because the filmmaker is not going to give you that information. No, they expect you to come in and be mm. willing and eager to do the work. Um, there's a great line. So we just reviewed on the latest episode of critically acclaimed. We do the critically acclaimed streaming club mm. And on that, uh, in addition to reviewing the new releases uh, of the week, we also try to review, since we're watching everything on streaming until the pandemic subsides, uh, we're trying to watch older movies as well that one or both of us haven't seen before. Yeah. And uh, this last week, we got to catch up with Glenn or Glenda, which I had never seen in its entirety. Mm-hmm. Whitney had seen it multiple times. Um And Whitney referenced uh, in our review mm-hmm. uh, a video essay. That I had that I had never seen. I wish I actually had seen it before we had that conversation because it's great. Yeah, I I just I I wanted the perspective of of a trans person. Yeah, on Glenn or Glenda. Yeah. That's not a perspective I have. So I, I wanted to find one. I found this yeah. wonderful video essay uh, yeah. on YouTube. Yeah, it's a, it's called Ed Wood Gender and uh, Glenn or Glenda uh, mm. slash video essay. It's from. Uh, uh, someone named Glauder Glens, G L O U D E R, new word, G L E N S, and it's a great video essay about Glenn or Glenda, and and she's incredibly frank about oh, yeah. uh, you know, her her relationship with this movie. Yeah, and, but it's very enlightening, and it, it's one of the best uses of film criticism is to give people a perspective on a work that they might not otherwise have been able to access fully. Yeah. Maybe we can understand it academically, but it's an entirely different thing to literally look at a movie through another person's eyes. And if you can do that, that's really good criticism. And this is a great example of that criticism. That's mm-hmm. really excellent. There's a line in this uh, a video essay that I had to write down because it was so good. <laughs> and the line is this. Subtlety is, is seen as a virtue only to those who can afford to be subtle. Or by those who wish for a film's message to be so subtle that they can just tune it out. Yeah. yeah. So if you're making a story and you feel like you can be subtle because you're maybe making a message that isn't like the most important thing people need to hear. Or you're just sort of amplifying messages that people are already familiar with. You don't necessarily need to shove this message down. You don't necessarily need to have a big speech about it. Uh, but if it's a really important message and maybe it's something people are talking about, then maybe it's important to be a little bit more direct so that it doesn't get lost. And on the fan side, if you're saying to yourself, I don't need to hear this message, that's on you. (laughs) Like, that's the thing. Like, tuning out the point of art is maybe not something to be revered. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Glotter Glenn's also had a really great, great quote from that same video. Um, and we're going on about this video because it's great. It's so good. Uh, 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 and we've we've expressed this similar sentiment, but she puts it much more succinctly. It's a keep your politics it's, out of entertainment. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, th- keep your those... po- I, I've written down. Okay. Keep your politics out of my entertainment. Say the people who benefit the most from complacency. Yeah, yeah. that's no, such well, damn good writing. That's so good. We we've expressed a similar sentiment using five hundred words. So yeah, yeah that's no. just gets right to the point just of the matter. Excellent writing. I'm just in awe mm. of that. Um, mm. 
So that's kind of where I stand on this whole showing versus telling thing. I think it matters. I think it's the kind of story you're telling. And I think it is with what urgency, mm-hmm. with what uh, significance are you placing on your underlying message? And I think that may be the reason why Nomadland didn't. It's a good movie. I'm not complaining about the movie. But I think the reason it didn't make my top ten is because I consider that message mm-hmm. to be of great urgency. Okay. And I think the movie felt like it could just yeah. focus on the characters and not underline it. And I feel like... We need that underlined a little bit. So that's that's think, that's to my taste, it didn't quite fit that. I, I think Chloe Zhao did an excellent job in terms of uh, writing and finding actual people who were living the lifestyle that the authenticity was captured mm-hmm. and the message was still the there. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. Stop playing videos. I was looking the, up uh, the name of a video and uh, I accidentally clicked a video. Sorry. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think there are some filmmakers who don't want to be subtle. Uh, Look at Spike Lee. I got, oh, yeah. I, I usually Co- got very to, confrontational. I got to uh, yeah. in- interview Spike Lee once, and I said, uh, I, and I tried to be as delicate as possible. It's like, uh, I see movies that tackle similar subjects as yours, but yours are a little bit, how, how should we say they're a little bit more direct? And, uh, and he kind of laughed. He said, yeah, we don't pussyfoot around. Yeah. It's like, yeah, he... He, he means it. He, it's he, important. He has a point, yeah. and he's going to say it, and he's going to say it over and over he to, make to make sure, sure you, you get know it. Yeah. what's going on here. And yeah. there's no vice in that. No, not inherently. I mean, you can still yeah. do it badly, I suppose, but the actual this, this intent idea, is not bad. This yeah. idea that you need to be sort of quiet and polite is is kind of a political maneuver in a lot yeah. of ways. So Please you can, be quiet when can, you say something that challenges my worldview. Yeah, you, you can kind yeah. of hide it or pretend it's not there. Yeah. And, it's uh, like when people say, like, hey, I, I don't mind you protesting as long as it's something I can easily ignore. Yeah. That's not the point. Mm. That's the exact opposite and, of the and point. The, and that's just, and that's one small step to, ooh, I don't mind gay people, but they make it all about their identity. You know, these, like, really bigoted statements that start, yeah. like, leaking through that attitude uh you know don't don't be passive progressive like in disney's films it's like oh yeah we have a queer character yeah and you blit if you sneeze you're not going to notice them yeah because if you because you can cut them out for mm. other audiences for like yeah. other countries where you're not allowed to show that kind of like that's not really very that, yeah you're not, that's being, not very forward you're not being yeah. progressive are you yeah like, oh, look, there's this, like, one of the cops in Onward was a lesbian. She mentioned yeah. it in one sentence. Yeah. Make the main character queer. Like, make it such that it can't be cut out. Like, yeah. underline that. Like, that's when I need you to tell, not just, like, you can't just put it in there. It's like, see, we showed you. Like, no, 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 no. That needs to be front and center mm. at least a little. You can't yeah, just, like, I'm... where if you remove it, you'd know something was missing. That's what's important. Anyway, uh, we got off on a bit of a tangent, but uh, that's a great letter. Thank you again, uh, B. Peterson, for the wonderful birthday present. And uh, again, check out Screens Margins. uh, Really, really great podcasting network. Check out their Patreon. uh, And uh, be sure to follow them on uh, Twitter. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, uh, let's move on. We have other letters. Here's a, yeah. It was a long one. We we tend to go off. It's fine. That's our thing. Yeah. Uh, Here's a letter from Paul. Hello, Paul. Hi, Paul. Um, this is one Paul reminded me to read. Uh, if, yeah, this is from, from a little while ago. I, I can't uh, I can't read all of your letters. We get a lot, and there's just not I'm enough time. I'm grateful for that. Not, Thank en- you. not enough hours in the day, and we do see them all, but yeah, yeah I just sort of, I, I have to pick and choose. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, if you... Ha- and Whitney is entirely in charge of that, by the yeah, way. So, I, so I don't blame me. If, if, I, if I skip over a letter, it's all on me. Yep. Get on me. Uh, contact you, me on Twitter. You can bug me uh, to bug Whitney, and that's fine. But Whitney, it's, it's the, like I don't. But uh, I don't if, delegate a lot. If, if <laughs> you if you if you, if you really thing. would like us to read a letter, yeah. you know, if, if you feel like we were discussing points close to what you were writing about, uh, yeah, just remind me, and yeah. I'll find it. Please. Um, 
But here's a letter from Paul from a little while ago. Uh, he says, uh, hi, Bibbs and Whitney, a longtime listener, first time emailer. Thank you for emailing. Thank you. A big fan of your podcasts with the pandemic having such a crippling effect on the worldwide film industry. This feels like a great time for studios to dust off any films that have been sitting on the shelves for years. Are there any famously unreleased movies that you're curious to see? Uh, some I'm curious about are Prisoners from 1983. A New Zealand drama about the daughter, Tatum of Neil, of a prison ward, David Hemmings, after her affair with one of her father's inmates, Colin Friels. Legend has it that Ryan O'Neill objected to how uh, his daughter was presented in the film and bought the rights to it. Damn. A copy of the film is held by New Zealand's uh, Nga Tonga Sound and, I'm, I'm sorry if I butchered that, uh, Sound and Vision Archives, but it has never been publicly screened. Ah. Curious. Uh, another film, Empires of the Deep, from about 2010. An expensive, reportedly $130 million U.S.-Chinese-produced undersea fantasy starring Olga Kurilenko, which mm. looks like Avatar crossed with Aquaman. Only a much derided trailer has so much has crept out so far, but it looks like it could at least be a fascinating failure. Huh. Empires I'm, of the I Deep. I never heard of that. Yeah. That sounds fascinating. Uh, 1984, Young Lust. Cheating a little bit with this one because it did get a single theatrical run in Austin, Texas. It has never been distributed in, uh, distributed in any way beyond that, though. This is an airplane-style send-up of soap operas and shot around the same time as the very similar Young Doctors in Love. Hmm. Between a studio that considered it unreleasable and a producer and director reportedly at each other's throats, this didn't even get dumped on cable like Paramount did around this time with White Dog and, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. Ah. Uh, Highly recommended, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains. Yeah, I've never seen it. That's a really good movie. Yeah, young Diane Lane, young Laura Dern as a a girl punk band on the lam. Cool. And they're playing with Fee Waybill from the Tubes. And uh, finally, 2007's Hippie Hippie Shake. Loads of great talent in this exploration into cities, 60s British counterculture, including the lead Killian Murphy and Sienna Miller, writer Lee Hall, and Brenda uh, Beban Kidron. Uh, unfortunately, this biopic of Oz magazine publisher Richard Neville ran into editing conflicts between Kidron and production company Working Title. Supposedly, Working Title had the production written off as an insurance loss, and a stipulation of the write-off was that the negative be destroyed. It physically hurts to type that, so I clearly, dearly hope that's not true. There that's are many depressing. others, but I'm curious to hear what movies you'd love to see dragged off the shelf. Stay safe, Paul. Uh, that's a great question, mm-hmm. um, and it's something that we are really passionate about, and I know a lot of film critics really are, because... There's some people who take the idea that, you know, we should be talking about what's available for people to see mm. because then they can see it. And that's true. We should be doing that. But we should also be reminding people that there's stuff that they can't currently see mm. so that these movies aren't completely forgotten and that and people then. know that they exist and can express a desire to see them so that people can eventually release them or know mm. that there's a market for them and well, and will think they can make money at it. So they will. Also, you know, we're we're just two critics in Los Angeles and thanks to the modern internet mm. uh, media landscape, so some people might have uh, resources we don't, yeah. and they might be able to see these things more easily than even we can. So, you know, that it's it's important to keep on bringing it up. Um, the first thing that came to mind that I there's a bunch of stuff that I've been able to see, but has never been officially released, mm. or that was available for a while, but it never had like a DVD release, and now it's gone. But um, the one film that came to mind that I have never seen. Mm. And I've always wanted to. It's got a really cool cast, and it's the actual. It's the debut, the like cinematography debut of Janusz Kaminski. Oh, uh, it's a horror movie called Grim Prairie Tales. Okay, it is a bunch of. It was a horror anthology series starring people like uh, Brad Dourif and James Earl Jones and William Atherton, and it's a horror anthology set in the Old West. 
All right. That sounds that cool. Sounds fun. That sounds really cool. Like I've heard actually I've heard it's quite good, but it's just there's people don't talk about it very much and it's just it's never been released. I think it was on VHS for a while, so I might be able to track it down if I, you know, if I make a point of it, but it's frustrating that it's not currently available. And then the other things I can think of are things that like just never came mm. out on home video. Um like uh, Tag the Assassination Game, mm. which was the directorial debut of Nick Castle, who was the original uh, guy oh, who played Michael the, Myers. The shape, yeah. Uh, but he would also go on to direct some really cool movies, including The Last Starfighter, which is one of my favorite sci-fi movies of the 80s. Um, and Tag the Assassination Game is a really fun movie. It stars a pre-Terminator, Linda Hamilton, uh, and it's about a college game that has taken over the country in which people take dart guns and they're basically playing an elaborate assassination game across the campus in which if you hit you, you find out who your target is and you have to hit them with a dart and then they're dead and one person starts taking it way too seriously and starts actually killing people oh jeez uh and it's quite fun it's a it's a really good uh, uh sort of hybrid thing um for whatever reason, Roberto Benigni's movies are really hard to find right now. It's a little odd, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, he was a big, big, big deal in comedy before Life is Beautiful came out. Most people know him from Life is Beautiful, which is this Oscar-winning movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, about It's a comedy about the Holocaust, and it's a miracle that that movie works at all. I think that's why it won Oscars. Everyone's like, how did he kind of get away with that? Like, that's just incredible. Uh, but before then, he did a lot of really broad comedies, and some of them were wonderful, and in particular, a film called Johnny Stacchino. It's, that's a great film. Johnny it's Stacchino so is hilarious. Yeah. Johnny Stacchino is about a guy who, um, he's a, he's just a workaday schlub, and he meets a woman who is desperately in love with him and wants to like take him away to like her villa, and... She's treating him really weird and he doesn't know why. And I'm not going to ruin every plot point for you, but there's a running gag with a banana that is seriously one of the funniest gags I've ever seen in any movie. <laughs> like, stay away from the bananas. They take bananas really seriously. <laughs> so funny. Um, that was a film. Uh, there was a film I saw from like the 19. 19- I'm going to look it up who directed this because I'm not going to mm. remember their name. Uh, there's a movie I saw at a screening in Los Angeles of a movie from the 1960s. Uh, 1965 uh, called The Plastic Dome of Norma Jean and this is the best of my knowledge Plastic Dome of Norma Jean to the best of my knowledge it has never been released on home video at all Hmm. Uh, and uh, it was written and directed by uh, Julene Compton and uh, I think Sam Waterston is in it somewhere Hmm. Um, but it's about uh, a woman who is basically uh, elevated to uh, sort of uh, psychic, uh, uh, almost evangelical status, and they like okay. do all these shows in a big plastic dome, and it's about like the toll that it takes on her, and it's really, really good. Like it's an excellent, it's a weird title, but it's an excellent mm-hmm. motion picture. I really loved it, and I was super bummed out that it had a couple of screenings in LA, like from UCLA, and then mm-hmm. it just it, no one ever picked it up. No. I was hoping Criterion oh. would pick it up or something because it's really interesting and cool. And I hope if you ever get a chance to see it, please do. It's really neat. Yeah. I, I I ran off on a rant. What um, are some of yours? Uh, I've I uh, was actually just talking about this film uh, with my wife. We went to go see uh, the film that Mitch Hedberg, the stand-up comedian, late late stand-up oh. comedian, wrote. Uh, which was kind of a riff on Clerks about employees who work in a Mexican restaurant. Okay, and it's called Los Enchiladas. I've and heard of this. 
Well, nobody has because it's unreleased. Uh, well, but yeah, yeah Mitch, but I'm, Mitch, not, I'm not completely, you know, without means. But yeah, yeah, Mitch Hedberg wrote this this rather uh, very in, in the vein of something like Clerks, where it's a lot of people having con- these really wacky conversations, and you know, there's some. Uh, you know, a lot of frank discussions about what their future is going to be because they're working this kind of dead end job. Uh, meanwhile, there's like these weird comic asides, like this fellow is trying to sneak into the restaurant because he writes menus better than anybody else. He's trying to <laughs> offer his services. <laughs> and, and there's it, it, yeah. it doesn't have that weird kind of like deadpan joke a minute uh, thing that you would expect from Mitch Hedberg if you're familiar with his stand up comedy. He has a very particular style. Yeah. 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 The, uh, Kit Kats. Have letters uh, printed in the chocolate that robs you of chocolate. That sort of thing. Yeah, hmm. yeah. This, I, want my, I wish my this, phone number was two 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 two, so that when people ask me what my phone number is, I could just say press two for a while. <laughs> when you hear my voice, stop. <laughs> this shirt is dry clean only, which means it's dirty. Yeah. Yeah. Every joke uh, has the same construction. It's, it's mm, brilliant, mm. actually. He's, he was a brilliant joke writer. He was, yeah, he was a brilliant comedian. We lost him to drugs. Yeah. Um, but he did make a make a feature film, and I got to see that at a, a sort of exclusive screening. That's cool. Would, do you have any idea why he got held up or just rights? Or it could have been a music thing. Uh, yeah, I'm oh, not yeah. exactly sure. Maybe the distribution rights were never secured, and Mitch Hedberg passed away during yeah. negotiation. It was just never released. That stinks. Um, I do have a screening copy of the film I Love You, Daddy, Oh, uh, which was not released because oh. it was directed, written and directed by Louis C.K. Uh, right when all of his crimes came to light. Yeah. And so the studio decided not to ever release it. So I, I have but, a copy. But but they had sent out screeners to critics and yeah. it had screened at some festivals. So a fair number of people did so see it. Some people I did haven't. see it, but it was never yeah. like properly released to the public. Especially considering it's it's a movie about like sex crimes. Like it's, 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 it's this really unsavory story yeah. about how, um, a, a, a dad who has, he has a teenage daughter and she begins dating somebody who's his, like older than he is. Mm-hmm. And he, like how uncomfortable he is with all that. And yeah. it's it sounds creepy. Yeah. It sounds, sounds kind of unsavory and given, given by the context of the film. Yeah. Yeah. I can see why that uh, happened, but I haven't seen it. So that's not you like, never not, actually watched I never, like I have the screener. I just yeah. never made time to watch the so movie. Weird. Um, yeah, I'm sure everyone's yeah, got. A, I'm sure everyone has some of these, and it's important to remember are, that there's a lot of movies out yeah. there that are not being taken care of, that are not being curated, that are not being uh, presented in, are not even available. Some of the things that we mentioned may be available on like YouTube or various sort of piracy mm. sites, yeah, uh, and that's, that's and I'm fantastic. glad that yeah. and and when that particular situation when a movie is available in no other way, I'm glad that it is available in some way. But we want to encourage people to get these things legally so that the people who made the movie can can, can a see their work reach a wide audience and not just people who are trying to search for it in the corners of the internet, but also so that they can get something for their work. You know, there's mm-hmm. art is often very devalued. In, in our culture and you know a lot of people are just like eh who cares you know like no people I, worked really hard yeah. to make that if it has value to you it should they should get some money for it of so course, well you know. if, but if we're talking about unreleased films then you know they're not asking for money they're well, trying to hide it so well, if you find it well, then you're, you're getting the studio might not be yeah. there may be situations in which the filmmakers would very very much like it to be released I know um Everybody's everybody has access to that Fantastic Four movie now yeah. from the mid '90s yeah. that that Roger Corman had the rights to those characters, which is still arguably the best Fantastic Four movie. It, in in a lot of ways, yeah, totally. Like it's, in it's, terms it's, of like it's incredibly the, cheap, but I like yeah. the design of the characters and the tone is just perfect. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 not. We've never had a great Fantastic Four movie, but mm-hmm. like to give that movie the 
budget of like the Josh Trank movie, that's a pretty good Fantastic yeah. Four movie. That Josh Trank movie was abysmal. And it needs a rewrite, <laughs> but the structure is fine. Yeah, like it's, yeah. yeah. Um, they're making another one now, aren't they? Didn't, uh, uh, Marvel's didn't working on Disney one in the, in the nearish one. future, yeah. yeah it's like it, th- listen, the comics were great. The, the comics were great. It's not the mm-hmm. comics' fault that people couldn't crack the code because it's not complicated. I don't understand why it's taken this long to get a good Fantastic Four movie. It's not complicated. <laughs> it's Indiana Jones with a family. But instead of looking into archaeology, they look into futuristic shit. Oh, That's the tone. It's not complicated. I would say that the tone should be more like Lost in Space, another science fiction family show. Sure, sure. I, that's not the, far off. Yeah, the, the original or the new one that's on Netflix. Yeah, either yeah. one. Yeah, I like the new one a lot, actually. Anyway. Anyway, um, here's a letter from R. Clay Johnson. Hi, Hello. R. Clay Johnson. Hello, R. Clay Johnson. Uh, Bibbs and Whitney, and it's in like huge, bold time. Wow. I don't even know how you do that. Um, I'm currently prepping a few projects for the Flying Cow podcast. Cool. Uh, listen to the Flying Cow podcast. Please do. And I'm hoping you can help me with one of them. The project is called The Academy. We choose a random year and use various critical sources to create a list of the 15 best films from that year. Okay. Uh, we watch them, discuss them, and name our own best picture. Uh, we have chosen the year 1994. I'm using a few online sources such as Metacritic and Siskel and Ebert's Top Tens, mm-hmm. but if you're willing, I would love to hear your input. Uh, first of all, um, mm. IndieWire puts out some really interesting Top Ten lists. You might want to look up what they have. Sure. They, they got the indie films. Uh, a few parameters. I need a Top Ten, uh, so five each, <laughs> okay. which does not include the Best Picture nominees. Uh, okay. Knowing you two, that right. shouldn't be too hard. Thanks, Arkley Johnson. Uh, P.S. This admittedly takes more prep than the typical question. Uh if you'd prefer, I can move this question to Twitter. Uh, nope, it's here. <laughs> nope, we're it's doing done it. now. Here's what we're gonna do. We are gonna take like four minutes. Mm. We're gonna just, and this is this isn't as detailed as we would normally do if we did an iron list. We're gonna pause it. We're gonna take a couple of minutes. We're gonna come up with five, and we're gonna present them as, as expediently as we can while okay. still giving the letter uh, uh, our full attention. So we'll be back in two shakes of a duck's whisker, and we are back. And that was kind of fun. I felt like we were being quizzed in school. <laughs> yeah, we're back. We have a li- we have our lists. We came yeah. up came up with we, them real we fast. Have, we haven't run them by each other yet. Mm. And uh, if one thing pops up on each of our lists, like if Whitney says something I was going to get to, I have to replace it with something else. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Whitney, why don't you start us off? All right. Um, now this is assuming you said you went through uh, the Oscar nominees and also uh, like Roger Ebert's best of list. Yeah. So you, you have some of the big ones already covered. Like um, yeah. I'm not going to recommend hoop dreams to you. Okay. Uh, you probably have hoop dreams already. Um, there are some, I say, we didn't check Robert Ebert's list actually. Maybe we know Ro- uh, Robert, Roger, Robert, <laughs> Robert, Ebert. Robert, his brother, uh, less, less famous, but still very talented <laughs> film critic. He, he had no siblings. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you probably know some of the big ones. Um, uh, my, uh, I, I work for Quentin Tarantino, so I can't talk about uh, some notable films of his that came out that mm-hmm. year. Um, but I am going to recommend uh, a, a few unconventional ones that you probably haven't considered yet. Um, I'm a big fan of Krzysztof Kieslowski's Three Colors trilogy. There you go. Um, the first of that trilogy, uh, Blue, came out in 1993, so technically you can't use it. But White and Red did, and they are both great films in their own right. I think white is kind of the underrated one. Mm-hmm. Red is the one that gets all of the, the attention. Red's the only one I've mm. actually seen. Yeah. I don't, uh, I don't know and it's, I, it's amazing. It's yeah. fantastic. I'm and, actually, and, yeah. And red wasn't released in the United States until 1995. So if we're going by US, us release dates, then white is the only one you can really consider, but white mm. is very, very good. And it is ah. about, uh, a man whose wife, uh, rather callously leaves him. And it's about his, he's an, uh, uh, 
Polish immigrant in France, and he has to find a way to traverse the system in order to kind of prove that he still loves her, but also get his revenge on her. Okay. And kind of prove what, what he's willing to do for her. Um, uh, it's really, really good. Mm. See white. Okay. Uh, my, uh, mm. my first pick is uh, Alan Rudolph's Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle, mm. uh, which is a fantastic biopic of a uh, renowned uh, critic, short story author, and poet Dorothy Parker, uh, who is really one of the great wits of the 20th century and just look up if you will look up all the words she invented <laughs> it's a lot yeah. uh but uh she it's uh, jennifer jason league is an incredible performance as dorothy parker and it's her uh navigating her career and her uh really just awful love life just a truly just her, her love life was just it, it needs a movie of its own it's just it's in, it really incredible and sad and and wonderful and the ensemble cast is fantastic and um i think it's one of the most underappreciated performances of the 90s it's just jennifer uh jason lee in that movie so mm-hmm. uh, what's your next um i'm gonna recommend this one's a little bit rough but it's one i'm very fond of but uh, if you can see lodge kerrigan's film clean shaven oh. that is clean comma shaven yeah, yeah. uh that is a really harrowing story about a man who uh is suffering from extreme schizophrenia and uh he is released from a mental institution uh he is not well and he's going to find his daughter who has been uh, adopted mm. And, uh, it, but it's all told, you know, we look at him and sort of the, the process he needs to go through and all of the sort of, uh, fear and paranoia that's constantly, uh, around him. He's like coating the inside of his uh, car with like tinfoil. And I, from, from what I have heard, it's a, pr- a pretty good, uh, depiction of, uh, a certain kind of extreme mental illness Mm -hmm. and it's really difficult to watch, but it's also weirdly uh, sensitive to his plight. Uh, It's been, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I, it it hit me really hard when I I was in my twenties. Okay. My next one is a movie that was actually a big hit, but it doesn't necessarily get a lot of respect. Mm -hmm. And I think it absolutely deserves at least consideration for the best movie of uh, movies, at least Mm -hmm. of 1994. And that's Joel Schumacher's the client. Um, you're very fond of this. I'm one. exceptional. I, know, I yeah. recently rewatched this, and I was shocked at how well it held up because mm. John Grisham movies were de rigueur uh, in the '90s. They were just everyone was making them, and some of them were really good. Some of them were very, very bad. Uh, but the client, I think, has held up the best out of all of them. And I recently rewatched all of them, like within the last two years. Um, Susan Sarandon uh, plays a uh, an attorney who picks up a pro bono case uh, for. Uh, young Brad Renfro, uh, who had witnessed a, a, a mafia informant uh, killing themselves, but not before they told him some information that he shouldn't have. And so uh, it's all about how the legal system is trying to screw over this kid and not protect him, and he is trying to protect himself and his family in a system that is, doesn't work against him. And it's a really, really great potboiler, but I actually think the movie really cannily acknowledges and delves into the inherent class struggles involved in the American legal system. Uh, and it does so in a really elegant way. I think this is the best John Grisham movie, and I think it's the best Joel Schumacher movie. Oh, that's a bold statement. He's yeah. made some pretty good movies. He was, he made some and crap. Bad, bad ones he made too, some crap. But yeah. People get people get on him for his crap, but people forget he made some excellent motion pictures as well. And I think there's a decent argument to be made that this was his best overall. Okay, what's your next one? 
Uh, my next one is one of my favorite horror movies of the 90s, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Crossing that off the list. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this was the the seventh film in the Nightmare on Elm Street series, but it, it's all, it can also function as the second, uh, where it catches up with the actors, the actors themselves, playing themselves from the original Nightmare on Elm Street film, as... Freddy Krueger, the movie monster, begins stalking them in the real world. Mm. And Wes Craven has this sort of philosophical idea that Freddy represents a, a kind of demonic energy that is held captive by human storytelling. Mm. And when the movies stop getting made, Freddy comes to life. And yeah. uh, that's that's kind of an interesting wrinkle and a great way to keep the, the story going in this kind of meta metaphysical sort of way yeah but he made two meta horror well three if you can't speak uh, scream two but he mm. made a, a two meta horror classics in the 90s mm. scream and new nightmare scream is great i got no word i got nothing bad to say about scream i think original scream is a classic mm. but i think Wes craven's new nightmare is a bit more thematically rich yeah. in a lot of ways at least when it comes to the actual subject of horror and storytelling mm. whereas i think scream is actually a lot more about feminism and uh, uh sort of reassessing what well, a generation uh, is like when they grow up on movies rather than real life and, experience. Well, and you'll notice that a lot of Wes Craven's films, not just Scream, are uh, and are about intergenerational revenge. Yeah. About how children are suffering the sins of their parents. And that's yeah. a big part of Scream. It's a huge part of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. And it's even New Nightmare, and, uh, where, where all mm-hmm. Heather Langenkamp has a young these, child now. Yeah. yeah and, and she starred in these horror movies, and she's dealing with the legacy of that and taking mm-hmm. care of her own child. And suddenly she gradually realizes that she's now the mom in Nightmare on Elm Street rather mm-hmm. than the, the child. And such a great movie. I'm mm-hmm. so glad you picked that. All right. <laughs> um, all right. My next one is maybe the most, un- like, it, it's weird because I know a lot of people who love this movie, but it's very rarely included on the list of the best Coen Brothers films. And that's The Hudsucker Proxy. <laughs> That's a kooky flick. The Hudsucker Proxy is practically perfect in every possible way. I know I'm the Mary Poppins quote doesn't doesn't connect to anything. It's just that good. I love this movie to pieces. Mm. Uh, Tim Robbins stars as uh, a young man who is trying to work his way up the ladder, and I think it's like 1930s, 1920s uh, Mm. New York, and uh, at a big company called Hudsucker Industries. And he's got big ideas, and he keeps showing people this circle that he's drawn, and they go, "Huh?" And he goes, "You know, for kids." And it turns out he invented the hula hoop. That's his big dream. And it's all about his bizarre rise to, to power and then his uh, very dramatic fall from grace. Which, which is which is not true that the hula hoop was invented by Whammo Toys. But, no, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fictional uh, retelling. But like it's absolutely hilarious. It's maybe the best fast-talking like screwball comedy ever. And I'm including the original ones from the thirties that this is riffing on. I, I just wanted to put two Jennifer Jason. Yeah, Lee I was going to say Jennifer Jason Lee is she's, really good in this one. She's too. brilliant. She's a brilliant performer. Uh, mm. there, this is a highlight of her, like mm. of her career is the nineties. She was amazing. So boom, there you mm. go. That's another one. How's like a proxy. Uh, it's, it's kind of a goofy comedy, but I think it's a damn near perfect comedy. Yeah. A lot, lot of energy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. What do you got? Oh, almost so much. You're going to throw up. Um, I like the Hunt Sucker Proxy just fine, actually. It's, it's just really, really fast. Um, Crumb is my next choice. Okay. Uh, the, doc, the Terry Zweigoff uh, documentary film about Robert Crumb, the underground comics artist. And every single one of his weird neuroses is on full display. This is incredibly confessional. Um, it's uh, And it's also about a really interesting figure who plays an important part in uh, a lot of American underground art. So be sure to include Crumb in, in your consideration. Nicely done. Uh, I'm going to pick an action movie 
and I think it's one of the best uh, action movies ever made, and that is Legend of the Drunken Master. <laughs> 1994 was actually a really good year for kung fu movies, and I had a hard time picking between Legend of the Drunken Master, Wing Chun, and Fist of Legend. Mm. All of those are classics, and you should consider all of them. But if I had to pick one, it's Legend of the Drunken Master. It's arguably Jackie Chan's best film. I might put Police Story over it, but it's like it's right up there. Uh, and uh, yeah, he plays a, a young man who is trying to defend uh, the honor of his uh, father's martial arts uh, uh, studio. And um, he has the rather shameful practice of uh, f- fighting while drunk. And when you're drunk, your balance gets thrown off and you're really unpredictable. And the choreography in this movie is you have to see it to believe it. Like, it's absolutely stunning some of the stuff Jackie Chan does in this movie. And he was not, like, he, he was, like, he was actually, like, quite a, a bit older here than in some of his, uh, you know, early movies. Like, he was, like, I think he was, I think he's actually older than the guy who plays his dad in this okay. film. <laughs> or, like, uh, or like the same age or something. Hmm. So, like, he's it's weird that he's playing younger, but he gets away with it because he's always had this, like, childlike innocence to his performances. Um, and it's, it's a really, really fun movie, and the action is just... Superlative. It's top notch. Mm. All right. What's your next one? Uh, Kensho Yamashita's Godzilla versus Space Godzilla. Of course. <laughs> How foolish I was. <laughs> okay, I could recommend Priester no, or, no, 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 or no, no, SFW no, no. or Ed Wood or Heaven the Creatures. I, but No, no, do it. Do it. Do, All it, right. do it. I but love it. I love you for who you are. God, Godzilla versus Space Godzilla. Godzilla, <laughs> some Godzilla particles get into space and it merges with space intelligence and creates a big space Godzilla with big crystals and it shoots crystal blast at Godzilla. I love and, space. And they got and they got Mogera, who you last saw in the nineteen seventy four film The Mysterians come back, which would eventually turn into the skeleton from the Mecha Godzilla in the later movies. And there's a baby Godzilla is gonna grow up to take on the Godzilla mantle when Godzilla fucking melts down like a fucking Viking at the end of Godzilla versus Destoroya. It's awesome. When are they putting a Godzilla slice in the Schmodown? You would go ahead. You would be the best. You would be the best. That is long overdue yeah, and you would yeah. kill. You would kill at that shit. I'd, I'd, I'd need to rewatch some of them, but yeah. I, I love me a good Godzilla movie. And the you also 90- love you a bad Godzilla movie. And I love... I don't love all the Godzilla movies, but I love the Godzilla movies. And uh, this is a good Godzilla movie. The ones from the 90s are, are not talked about a lot. And I think they... Uh, they have the spirit and just the right kind of slick special effects uh, married together in a way that uh, we wouldn't see uh, before or after. Um, I think the best ones are still the ones from like the 60s and 70s, but this one's a really good one, too. Okay. Uh, and then, was that your last one? That was my fifth one. Yeah. Okay, jeez. The, the awe-inspiring responsibility of getting the last pick on here. Mm. Of uh, trying to uh, fuck it, Little Women. Um, I don't care. <laughs> I, haven't, this... I haven't seen Little Women. Little Women so... is a movie. I, there's two schools of thought on Little Women when it comes to talking about the best films in 1994. Mm. And I just want to make sure because this, you might be of this school of thought where, yeah, it's mm. one of the best movies of the 90s. There are also people who'd be like, really, Little Women? To which I respond, yeah, fucking Little Women, man. That's a great fucking movie. Holy shit. Like Jillian, Armstrong's Jillian, Armstrong, adapta- yeah. Jillian Armstrong's adaptation with Winona Ryder uh, and uh, uh, Susan Sarandon. Oh, oh, she's in two of mine again. Weird. Um, but uh, And uh, Christian Bale and Kirsten Dunst. And um, it's it was, for my money, the best Little Women we had until we had Greta Gerwig's. Hmm. I think Greta Gerwig actually fixed some problems with the narrative that were endemic to the book. 
<laughs> like they actually fixed the book. Whereas I think Jillian Armstrong's Little Women is the best adaptation of the book hmm. overall. I think it's a pretty damn impeccable. Uh, the cast is stellar. It's funny. It's sweet. It's romantic. It's sad. It's kind of everything you want a movie to be. Uh, and uh, to this day, I have no idea why it's PG. There's nothing in it. There's nothing. In it. It's officially it's rated PG for language, and I'm like, they use language mm. to articulate themselves, but there's no foul language. Mm. The closest thing they have is someone says "blast," and they get chided for using slang. Like I've never understood why it's <laughs> PG. Anyway, uh, it's I, a great I, movie, and that's that's that I have to put it on there just in case. I remember talking to uh, Larry Blamir, who made a really wonderful film called The Lost Skeleton of Cadaver and, and other uh, similar films. Great, silly uh, all, movie. all very funny. Uh, he's he's an incredibly funny guy. And The Lost Skeleton of Cadaver is rated PG. It's meant to look like a '50s B movie. There's no extreme violence. There's no sex. There's no language in it. But it's still rated PG. And I asked why. Was it something about the skeleton? He said they used the word jackass once. Oh, Somebody yells, shut up, you bony jackass, to the skeleton. <laughs> and evidently that was too rough <laughs> for, for the MPAA. The MPAA was like, so. whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> shut up, you bony jackass. There are children <laughs> present. <laughs> what are you doing? First of all, if you're taking your kid to see uh, The Lost Skeleton of Cadavera, good for you. Yeah. What a great parent. Oh my god, I wish I had that movie growing up. That movie's charming as hell. It's really fun. It's the same joke over and over, but it's a funny joke. It's so good. Aliens? Us? Is this one of your Earth jokes? (laughs) So many good one-liners. All right. That's neither here nor there. That's from the, the early 2000s. Anyway, we hope that helps. Uh, let's, we have time for one or two more letters. Let's do okay. It. Um, here is a letter, uh, from Jack. Hi, Hi Jack. Jack. Uh, dear the bold and the biblical. Nice. The hyphen or apostrophe bold because I'm so bold. I guess I won't be bold today. Um, and, and this is another one uh, calling back to our recent Kenzel Too Soon episode about Mad, uh, the Mad animated special. Oh yeah, the Mad, uh, uh, again, if you missed it, we did an episode of Cancel Too Soon, uh, where we talked about a failed animated sketch, uh, sketch comedy show pilot based on Mad Magazine, hmm. uh, which had very mixed results. Yeah, uh, it, it, it doesn't really work as a, work. a pilot. Yeah. Um, you know, they it's just, an interesting they curio. Just, they just put yeah. the panels up on screen and it doesn't work. It just That no. direct translation didn't quite work. No. Uh, your recent letter about the Mad TV Tarzan sketch uh, reminded me of a few things. There's a popular quote going around the internet that I think perfectly encapsulates what you guys were trying to say. That is... Satire requires a clarity of purpose and a target, lest it be mistaken for and contribute to that which it intends to criticize. Perfectly stated. Um, there are also two Lindsay Ellis videos that discuss the... I'm, I'm a fan of Lindsay Ellis. She's mm-hmm. a video essayist on YouTube. Um, I have her book. She, oh. put, she wrote a science fiction novel. And I, oh, I, I didn't know I, that. I bought That's it. Awesome. I haven't read it yet, though, so I can't comment. Okay. Uh, one is about the producers, uh, which touches on the people who complain, how come stuff get... Ma- how come people get mad if I say offensive stuff? Mel Brooks did it and highlights the importance of what satire targets and importantly what it doesn't and how it goes about doing so. It also points out that it's easy for satire to fail. For example, movies that are, are meant to depict how Nazis are bad, for instance, uh, American History X or the Tomorrow Belongs to Me sequence from Cabaret, often end up instead appealing to Nazis yeah. because they don't effectively make them look bad enough. In fact, they accidentally make Nazis look kind of cool and kind of badass. I heard a similar argument on a podcast once where that one of the hosts said that American History X really pissed them off because Edward Norton's character makes a lot of pro-racist arguments early in the movie and that if you're racist or on the fence sound like good arguments and then the movie never refutes them. Norton just stops being a Nazi because he gets 
uh, assaulted by Aryans and makes friends with an African-American guy, so he's not racist anymore. Yeah, that movie doesn't entirely work. White supremacists on the internet, though, either ignore the ending or simply clip those arguments out of context for for them to support their own bigotry. That's Again, Mm. that can be very dangerous. Yeah, and uh, I think... um, and that film was made by a British director. So I think yeah. uh, when, uh, to briefly defend American History X, I think he was making the assumption that no one in the audience would be on the Nazis' side. Yeah, we can make that assumption. And anymore. we, and, and yeah. we've, we, many people have learned, uh, especially in the Trump era, that uh, making uh, racist caricatures seem really broad isn't necessarily going to get the point across anymore. Yeah, no, I, uh, that's one of the reasons why I love Black Klansmen because like they'll they'll portray the the Klansmen of that movie as really broad, but they also acknowledge that that's a real problem. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that when you treat them as really broad and like we can just sort of roll our eyes at them, mm-hmm. you're ultimately giving them power because they're allowed to flourish unchecked. Yeah, and that's yeah. the danger of it. And that's the danger of something mm-hmm. like. American History X, which I think is kind of interesting from like Ed Norton's performance angle, but mm-hmm. I actually not a big fan of that movie. Right. I think it's, for, it's, for it's, kind it's, of for kind of this reason, yeah, actually, it's, it's yeah. been quite a while since I've seen it, but that came out in in the late nineties. I was yeah ninety nine, I, I think. Yeah, I was uh, I was barely in college at that point. Um, the other video is about the second the second Borat film and makes mm. a point of mentioning that ironic or quote ironic anti-Semitism is far and away the most effective gateway to actual anti-Semitism. It also points out the difference between the 2006 and 2020 films, namely that the people in the 2006 film were seen as fringe and niche and not representative of America, whereas by the time the 2020 film came out, we had all collectively realized, oh shit, there's actually a large percentage of the country that agrees with all this bigoted, hateful stuff, and it turns out need very little prompting to reveal itself. The long and short of it is that if you say something bigoted and that is by itself the joke, you run the risk of making bigotry appealing and likable mm-hmm. instead of tearing it down. Or at the very least, normalizing um, it yeah, or like, putting that out there to people keep, who might not otherwise have experienced yeah, keep, keeping it. Keeping that yeah. language kind of, yeah. yeah. We have a responsibility for shit like Ar- that. Archie Bunker, which you guys mentioned in the last episode of We've Got Mail, is a perfect example of this. If the mad sketch was indeed meant to satirize white flight, it definitely fell into this trap. Sincerely yours, Jack. Yeah, Jack, um, that's very well stated. Yeah, and the the way I put it was, um, you know, growing up, I heard uh, a a lot of shows, and I mentioned South Park as an example, uh, that used kind of like offensive and racist language uh, as a means of shock humor. Mm -hmm. And that, that was seen as perfectly legit at the time because the assumption was the audience didn't have those bigoted views, Mm -hmm. that it's kind of make using this shocking language to point out that to point out how extreme those views really were and, and then how, realize, how backwards those views were. And then he realized then, that if people have those bigoted views, they're watching South Park and going and nodding their heads. Well, yeah, I, yeah. I, the, the, the words I used were, um, uh, it, you have to make sure that your, your racist joke that's trying to send up racism doesn't sound like the, use the exact same words as the real thing. Yeah. You have to make yeah. sure that it is absolutely yeah. distinguishable from an actual yeah. joke about the thing that you're yeah. saying is bad. And that's, Something that I think South Park has whiffed a lot, even just thematically. I think um, there's a lot to be said for the way that South Park uh, routinely mocked people who take things seriously. Mm. People who take, like, uh, you know, social issues seriously. Yeah. or And uh, the idea that uh, the only the thing that we should really be worried about is people who take things seriously, not the things that they're taking seriously. And I think yeah. that's actually really insidious when you experience it over, like, decades Mm-hmm. When you're absorbing that over a long amount of time, I think that that's something that we should remind people that, like, no, taking things seriously is how things get changed. 
yeah. and how and how we fix things. Because if you just roll your eyes, like, oh, they want to make the world a better place. Well, fuck that. Like, no, that's a really negative attitude to push really hard constantly in the mainstream for a really long time. And so I've actually even some episodes of South Park that I used to really like, and I still think you know, in a vacuum, they're they're good writing. Mm. Um, when you look at South Park as an aggregate, I'm actually kind of not happy with the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and. and- well, and over over the long term, you begin to get a sense as to what the the actual voice of the show is, and yeah. you see it as What's the ultimate takeaway yeah. as as being um, almost harmfully nihilistic. Yeah. Uh, it, it just punches in all directions and doesn't believe in anything. That, yeah, that caring caring is uncool, and um, you know that that's an attitude. But you know when you realize how earnest it is, it, it becomes really distasteful. After yeah, how, how pervasive? Like again, like you can watch like an episode and it's cool, but if you like download it and like into your brain mm. for a lot of time you realize that it's just like maybe that's not like the yeah, best theme to push constantly I, I, I thought that there was like something sensitive going on here but it turns out no not so much there's, sometimes there's actually... but not often I, and, yeah. and of course the, the attitude did change over years sure. so, they, know, that there's, show there's, changed there's... dramatically over time yeah. true but mm. the overall attitude of oh you care about things mm. <laughs> well, well you're yeah, well, you're, you're yeah. the worst <laughs> person in, in the world mm. no mm. Anyway, uh, we got time for one more. Right, uh, here's a letter from RJ. Hi, RJ. Hi, RJ. Um, hello, Bibbs. Hello, Whitney. Uh, listening to Whitney's review of the SpongeBob movie, Sponge on the Run, brought me back to November of last year when the film was released on Netflix in the UK, and my roommates got to hear me piss and moan about it. Both you and William mentioned having, uh, not having seen a great deal of SpongeBob nor growing up with it. I was the perfect age for it. Oh. The show is only two years younger than me, and the first movie is one of my favorite animated movies of all time. It's very funny. So I thought I would write in with my opinion as a SpongeBob fan on how to, how I feel about the film. It made my number five of my worst of the year list wow. and how it compares to yours. I'm not here to say you're wrong. I just thought it would be an interesting to compare our reactions with our different mileage on the show. And again, this is again, mm-hmm. getting different perspectives on, on media mm-hmm. can be really, really useful. And I'm sure, you know, we're not claiming that this is every fan's yeah, perspective, but neither of us are super fans. So hearing any super fans perspective is interesting. Yeah, I, I, so let's, I, let's I, talk about I it. I even presage. That. I've only seen the films. I'm not yeah. a fan of the show. Uh, much like The Simpsons, I think SpongeBob at its peak is in a, is a contender for the funniest TV show of all time. The first three seasons and the first movie are solid gold as far as I'm concerned. But much like The Simpsons, the show fell off after the first movie. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, I've not seen most of the recent seasons, so I can't comment. But SpongeBob was the first time where I, as a child, realized something I was watching wasn't good anymore. Aww. The show is wacky and insane, but lost all the charm and genuine and clever and humor it had to start with. The second film came out and was also contender for my worst of the year. Uh, that year, but it didn't quite make it. And with this new installment, I was even more depressed. To me, Sponge on the Run is entirely soulless with zero personality or anything genuinely funny. Most frustrating is the way it simultaneously relies on the history of the show whilst completely rewriting it. Mm. I'm not going to lose sleep over the backstory of a talking sponge. The summer (laughs) camp backstory came out of nowhere and doesn't fit in with the actual history of the show. I wouldn't mind so much if it wasn't for the fact that this this film wants you to enjoy these characters as you understand them from the show, but it's actually just a soft reboot and that that isn't honest about it. Mm. Nickelodeon are producing a spin-off show for which the film is a backdoor pilot. That's the new the new SpongeBob show is yeah, the summer camp, summer camp show, camp, yeah. as, as the SpongeBob is a young sponge. Okay. 
and in that respect, the film the film feels incredibly hollow. I'm not 100% sure on the details, but I heard that creator Steven Hillenburg, uh, the late Steven Hillenburg, uh, actively didn't want spinoffs for the show, and now that he's gone, it feels like Nick has just jumped at the chance to, Nickelodeon, that is, has jumped at the chance to milk the cow even further. Any listeners, please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong on this. Uh, uh, that That's, I, again, I don't know the specifics mm. of this particular instance, but if I had a dime for every time, like a studio or a network or a corporation like went behind the wishes of someone who mm. didn't want something to happen as soon as they were out of the picture. Yeah. It would, I would have quite a few dimes. Mary Poppins. Like a, yeah. Mar- look, yeah. yeah. Mary Poppins returns, like was yeah. put into production, like the instant PL Travers yeah. died. PL Travers like yeah. had it in her contract that like you could, or like had it in her will that like Disney couldn't like do more Mary Poppins. And as uh, soon as she died, yeah. <laughs> they did more Mary Poppins. Uh, yeah, so. no, ah. Look, also look up Roald Dahl in that. In oh, that yeah, respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he hated that Charlie in the chocolate factory movie said no more. Nobody can do my my yeah. books as movies. There's and, a big dry period, yeah. and then he died, and then and, there were and a bunch. They, they put one into production like the day he died. Yeah. Very very uh, cynical. And anyway, very, R.J. Very R- 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 does up, continue. Yeah. Uh, overall, it feels less like the SpongeBob I know and love, and more like a corporate product that wants to bank on the established show, while also overhauling it, and I don't think it gets to have both. Hmm. On top of that, it's unfunny and unpleasant, and a genuine pain to sit through, oh god, I dislike it so much. <laughs> Now, I know a lot of Spongebob fans were happy with it, and more power to them, but I just wanted to write in with, with that for my sake and for yours. I hope it all is going well with you two. Uh, all the best, RJ. RJ, thank you so much for that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, again, it's 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 interesting to like have a fandom for something where like you have an emotional connection to something. You grew up with something. Yeah. And then you watch that thing turn into... That you that is like maybe you and I'm seeing from my experience I can't speak for RJ here obviously but this is what connected to me you gradually watch that thing that you sincerely and unabashedly love on its own and you see over time how it gets turned into more and more of a corporate product yeah and how the things that you had a real connection to are now things that are considered uh you know we can remodify that for new audiences or whatever. And on one hand, it's important to just kind of let go because yeah, you have yeah. no control over it. And, well, the, the and, and maybe new versions will be really good. That that's, happens. But that, like, that's, the, that's yeah. the danger with fandom. And this is something that w- was put into sharp relief with the movie Ready Player One, mm. how uh, your fandom is a corporate exchange. It's a financial exchange. Yeah. Well, not, you, uh, not necessarily. You can be a fan of non-corporate things, but a I, lot of I fandoms, suppose so. Yeah. But you know, the, the the fandom as it was displayed in Ready Player One and uh, the sort yeah. of pop culture fandom that we refer to when we use the word uh, is is a very financial. It's a market uh, yeah. exchange, and you're, you're basically the, agreeing to buy products. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, you're, you're agreeing to buy products, and you're, you're, you're agreeing dis- to market products. Really, you're, and like, you're, you're going to talk about them, and you're, you're selling dis- it. You're displaying your affection by spending and yeah. the the more you spend it's sort of like uh almost proving your fandom and I think by, by acquiring and, and i think uh, we don't always talk about how the commodification of conversation is yeah. an issue here as well every single time you talk about mm. the snyder cut or the mcu wandavision mm. or harry potter or whatever that's seen as publicity by the studio the studio yeah. benefits from that because that is considered market penetration like mm. all that's like it's ubiquitous now everyone knows about it so this brand has more value mm. unless the brand becomes exclusively linked with toxicity so basically fandom is 
exploitation on some level. Yeah, yeah. At least from a corporate perspective. And that's why we're, we, we tend to be a little uh, mistrusting of it mm. between you and I. Like, well, we're little, still fans little, of things, but like, but yeah, we're, we, we, we always we're, try we're to, very suspicious. We try of, to be skeptical of, yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. Like f- fandom in general. Yeah. The concept, not necessarily fans or a particular No, fandom, no, no. Like the concept and, and of fandom is a little risky mm. because you're talking about fanaticism. That's what the term comes from. Oh my God, William, can't you let, just, just let people enjoy things? <laughs> The, the shh, let people enjoy things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the part that galls me is the shh part. Yeah. That is in shut up and don't criticize what I like. The the author of that particular comic strip that became a meme uh, has, I believe, gone on to clarify, like, that doesn't mean no criticism ever. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, just like, means, like, to, there's a time and a place. Because it... it, it <laughs> His his art was being used to like in these really blunt arguments to, to silence stifle, people to yeah. stifle conversation. Mm-hmm. And what's really frustrating is it's not like you know. Listen, I'm on the couch right now. I'm trying to enjoy my show, and you're talking. That was the context of the comic. People are using it as a, hey, there's a multi billion dollar corporation uh, that should not be questioned. <laughs> and every time you try to uh, criticize mm-hmm. Disney or whatever. Uh, you're ruining it for everybody, and I'm like, no, we're punching upward, not mm. down, guys. That's that's they're in charge. They won, okay? Like <laughs> they're on top. We're, we're, they're we're, the ones who need to need to be criticized. Yeah, the most. like we're, it's like they're Godzilla, and we're a mouse with a toothpick sword, okay? And it's like if we can get one jab in, and Godzilla kind of feels it, that's. That's not killing Godzilla, okay? That's that's just making a point, you know. Like we're here, damn it. We we still have this opinion. What we need it's is a weird Mo- metaphor I made up. What we need is Mogera, who last made his appearance in the nineteen seventies, The Mysterious. Go on. <laughs> Showed up in Godzilla versus Space Godzilla. Yeah, it was later used. See, fandom. Skeleton. We're still fans. Yeah. Anyway, that's it for critically acclaimed uh, uh, show. We've got mail. <laughs> the critically acclaimed show. We've got mail. Show. Uh, the, the, colon the show that's it for we've got mail thank you everybody for writing in if you want to write into a future episode of we've got mail the email address is letters at critically acclaimed dot net uh, we would love to hear from you again we can't read every letter but we we try and we try to give every letter the as much time as we can um, so it's really important thank you so much for joining and thank everybody for writing uh, you can also follow us on twitter at critic acclaim I'm at William DeBiani I'm at Whitney Seibel we have a patreon patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network very special shout out to all of our patrons without whom this show and all the other shows we do would be gone mm. like we would not be able to do it like they would they would all vanish so it's it means a lot to us that you support us on our journeys and thank you so much to everyone who can afford to contribute and who does and if you can't we totally get it times are so hard but if you can you can leave us a review wherever you find us yeah, that would really really help a star rating a couple of lines on apple Podcasts, or whatever you find us that would be really really helpful and helps more people find the show uh, also if you want to support uh the, the concept of soap uh you go over to our etsy well, store not just the concept the actual thing well I was so going to get the, to that. It's not the platonic ideal of soap. This uh, is real soap. My point is that I think everyone kind of is on board with soap being a good thing. So uh, M. Lapis de Silva, my wife and partner, and I, we have a soap store on Etsy called Salt Cat Soap, uh, where we uh, design and sell designer soaps. Uh, Michelle has done all the designs so far. I'm working on a few. Mm. Uh, so the store's only been open for a couple of months. Uh, but they're really, really cool, and uh, we've had a lot of a lot of sales. Actually, a lot of people have been really supportive, and they like the soaps. We've mm. had really good reviews. So uh, check out Salt Cat Soap. It's also on Twitter and Instagram at Salt Cat Soap. 
Um, and, and, a, and the, a very real cat is the mascot. Yeah, and we sell stickers. Actually, we sell Luca stickers of like Luca like biting soap and like looking at soap and looking kind of intense about it. And it's, he's so cute. Uh, so there are stickers to buy there as well soap. of Luca. But you should also get soap. Soap intensifies. <laughs> Um, but in any case, thank you everybody once again. We hope you have a wonderful week. We'll be back soon with more podcasts. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney.